0: Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, TrinitySpartanburg.com. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 9, and if you would, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Romans 12, starting at verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, preserving in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. This is the word of the Lord. you. You may be seated. We have a, uh, a pond in the back of our house, and uh, we've always wanted waterfront property, and so we have it, and it's kind of a nice pond, it's uh, water that comes from Paris Mountain and then it kind of collects there and then moves on into a river somewhere, I think. Uh, I never followed it, but, uh, but it's a nice pond. When people come to our house and they look out the back window, they see this beautiful pond and they even say, what a beautiful pond. Um, and on a clear day, you can see you know, pretty far into it, you can see little fish around there. It's really nice. But it's only nice because people are looking at it from the inside of our house. If they had to live at our house, they would have to take care of the stuff near the pond And they would realize if any of that water got on you, you would stink for the rest of the day. It stinks. There are snapping turtles in there. Not cute little turtles that, you know, you you see like crawling. Snapping, like snap things off of you type snapping turtles. Um, The bottom of it is filled with silt. Silt is a polite way of saying really, really nasty mud that your foot sinks into and you cannot escape it. It's like quicksand, but there's water all around you. It's horrifying. Uh, Leeches. If you were to uh, be foolish enough to throw your body into that water, you would come out with leeches all over any exposed skin. It's a horror story in there. But it's beautiful on the outside. Looks great. I think that Paul had this... Kind of a metaphor in mind as he was writing this chapter, because a lot of us come to church uh, wearing a nice outfit that our wife might have gotten on sale at Joseph A. Bank, and uh, and we feel pretty good. Our kids, by chance, are. Behaving this, you know, for, you know, this amount of time that we're here and it almost looks like we're doing a good job. Um, We we come in, kind of put together, also thanks to our wife, and we look like a nice pond. But if you look deeply enough, if anyone followed you home, if anyone heard what you said just before you opened the door in the parking lot, screaming at the kids to shut up, right? And we know we're not supposed to say that in front of them, but they deserved it this time because we are so angry because they did that thing one more time, and we lost it. We take a deep breath, we open the doors, and out we come the beautiful family that we are, right? Our churches can look like that. We're on the surface, we have our liturgy, we have our music, We have the way we do things that make things look right. But if we look closely enough, we see problems. Today we're going to talk about the silt, the bottom of our pond. We're going to talk about the leeches. If you look at uh, Romans chapter 12... At the very beginning, it has those first two verses that are actually, uh, a lot of people know about them. Um, I beg you, right? It starts off with begging. Therefore, I urge you, or I beg you, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, okay? What we see here is Paul is starting to show us the way he writes. And you'll see this in Ephesians as well. What he does is he'll tell you what your identity is. This is who you are. This is your purpose. And therefore, go do this. It's kind of what he does. He does this in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, you are imitators of God. This is what you are. Right? And then he'll say, this is your purpose. And you are to be people that are filled with the Holy Spirit, not wine not drunk. The thing that possesses you when you are drunk should be the the Holy Spirit possessing you that way. That's your purpose. And therefore, you're supposed to submit to each other. And what does that submission look like? That submission looks like wives submitting to their husbands, children submitting to their parents, so on and so forth. The same pattern is found here. Who are you? What's your identity? You are people that are living sacrifices. You understand what a sacrifice was, right? It's the bull on the altar. They slit the throat. It's a sacrifice, but you're a living one. You put yourself on the altar, and you remain alive in Christ as living sacrifices that and, and you'll notice, and this goes with what um, Andrew was talking to us last week about, he says, you present your bodies. And you would think he would say present your soul, right? Wouldn't that mean more? But instead he says, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And those bodies are supposed to be holy, so that your spiritual worship will be demonstrated. Your purpose is to prove what the will of God is. And you can only do this if your mind is transformed. And then you're able to know what the will of God is. Now, if you're going to know what the will of God is, it goes on in verse 3 to say that you need to be humble. Don't think of yourself as more important than you ought to think. And then he goes into gifts. Talks about all the different gifts. And those gifts are supposed, to be, are supposed to demonstrate from verse 3 that you are not your gift. That's not your identity. God will use you the way he wants to use you because of your purpose, which is to know what his will is. Does that make sense? So you're supposed to, your purpose is to know what his will is, and he'll use you any way he wants And he's given you gifts, and those gifts aren't you. Those gifts are something he gave you so that he could use you as he pleases. Now, I'm saying this because this is the whole problem when we talk about individual gifts inside the church. We identify with our gifts. I am my gift, therefore, my value is found in my gift. Therefore, I must be pretty important, because I'm gifted, and I have this gift, and this is me. What's being said here is this gift isn't you. You are someone who is a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, so that you might worship. Your purpose is to know what the Lord's will is, so that you might do it. And why am I going on and on about this? Because verse 9 tells us what his will is isn't that great you don't have to guess right it's uh what every senior in high school starts thinking about what's god's will for me in my life it's the first time they probably think about it you know where am i going to go to college am i going to go to college what's the lord going to do with me who am i going to marry well suddenly we're super duper interested in god's will And we think that God's will is going to tell us a university to go to, or a job to get, or a name of a person we're going to marry. Instead, what we get is stuff that's a lot harder than that. If you look at verse 9, the development of verse 1 and 2 starts coming out. The development is this, that if you, that our work here is to know what the Lord's will is, and here it is in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, and abhor what is evil, and cling to what is good. So then we get to the touchy stuff. So I hope you don't mind, we're going to get touchy here for a minute. Um, This gets into what love is about. Let your love be without hypocrisy. Well, what does that mean? It means let your love be without um, falseness. Well, that seems pretty... I mean, you know, I want... We all have genuine love here, don't we? We're all genuine. Let me put it a different way for those of you that are more like me. Uh, Those of you that are more uh, extroverted... Extroverted people probably know more what I'm talking about than you introverted people do. Extroverted people understand what this verse says because what it's really saying is love without being so polite. I'm extroverted, so I'm really good at being polite. I am really good at smiling and being friendly to people without any love whatsoever. And it looks great. I got to say, I don't, mean, I don't want to brag, especially from the pulpit, but it looks great. I mean, I, uh, you know, you're smiling, you're shaking hands, you're like, wow, that guy's really nice, and that's all I want is just for you to think I'm nice so I can get to my car and go. And people like me who are really good at being polite, we're really good at being absolutely filled with hypocrisy in our love. In fact, it's very hard for people to know if we even love you, because we're so good at being polite. In fact, some people might even say, I don't even, you know, if they're really paying attention, they're probably thinking, how does anyone know if that guy's really real? What is going on in that guy's head? With the weird plastic smile and the hearty handshake, who is he? Now let me talk to you introverted people for a moment. Let your love be without hypocrisy. Now you introverted people probably know what this means because it pains you to be around people because it pains you to fake anything. You can't stand faking things. Now that's a good thing because people like me, I'm super great at it. And so no one knows who this guy is. Now, you introverted people, most people know who you are. because they are like, why is that person so rude? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> because they can't stand to have a fake moment, right? Which is wonderful. But that's why they're so exhausted at the end of fellowship time, right? Because they have tried to be real with every single person they're with. With us extroverted people, we have tons of energy left over because we weren't real with anybody. We just sailed right through that with a bunch of smiles and handshakes and we're ready to go off to to, uh, Disney World after that. But you introverted people. When we're driving away from a fellowship meal, you're just like, ah, right? And that's good. But it's also difficult. For introverted people. Because it's hard for you to love people because the people that, that are doing this to you are draining you. And it makes you hate them. Right? I mean, if we're going to be honest with ourselves. And so then our love becomes super filled with hypocrisy, even as introverted people, because we resent the people we're trying to be nice to. So this one statement right here condemns about 99% of us. But that statement goes on. It's It's another sentence, but Paul is not changing the subject. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Now we might say, now that's a general statement as the first statement is. And this is Paul's way of writing. He will give a general statement that will then be the general statement that then helps us focus on the more specific things coming up. So in Ephesians, he did this. He says, submit to each other. That's a very general statement. What does that mean? Well, feminists love that verse because they say, see, we're supposed to submit to each other. The men are supposed to submit to us too in our, in our marriage. And uh, well, no. This is Paul's way of giving a general statement and then saying, okay, how does this general statement apply to very specific things? So what we're going to find is this general statement has to apply to the next few verses that are going to be more specific. I say that because we might see these verses right here as too general. Well, of course you have to, you know, abhor bad things and Love good things. But what's the context of those statements? The context of that statement is love. In fact, as we get to more specific things with people, we're going to find that this love has to do with what we're assuming about each other. So in one sense, it's general in that you cannot keep entertaining evil in your life and then expect to love people when you get to church. You cannot spend the week resenting someone at church and then getting to church and then not being a complete hypocrite in your smile towards them. It also means, as we think about others in the church, are we abhorring the evil thoughts about them? Do we cling to the good? Are we clinging to the good? Clinging to the good has a general sense in which you can't spend the week avoiding the good and then come to church and then expect to love people. In a more specific sense, what we're going to see as we go down to verse 10, 11, and 12, you can't spend the week avoiding what is good about those in the church. And then come to church and expect to love them without hypocrisy. So we have our general statement. Don't love with hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Cling to that which is good so that you're prepared to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And giving preference to one another in honor. So I wanted this to be a sermon that just kind of encourages everyone and never steps on anybody's toes. Unfortunately, we have to stick to the text. Um, And that leads us to this. It does not say, which I really wish it would, be devoted to the people that you have found attractive in the church. Be devoted to those in which you click, be devoted to those that you have found you can really have a good relationship with. What it says is be devoted to one another in brotherly love. I want, to th- I want you to think right now of the people in the church that you click with, that when you think of the church, you're like, well, there's a lot of weirdos in there but at least I can talk to so-and-so because they're normal. (laughs) And you know exactly what I'm talking about. And then when the person that's not so normal walks up, you're like, oh, I hope someone else is around here to talk with them because I don't want to be stuck here talking to that guy. I want you to think of the people that you think of during the week that you actually care about what's going on in their lives. When the Lord finally saved me, um, I had already been involved with the church. I had gotten a degree at a Christian university. I had a wife and kid. I was um, the, the uh, Sunday school teacher for the college age kids. We were going through a systematic theology book because I could not be more pompous. And We were at the height of our influence at that church. I was even being asked to be an assistant pastor. I was going to a seminary to work on an MDiv, and that's when the Lord said, okay, you can stop being a a hypocrite. It's time for you to repent and uh, humiliate yourself in front of all those people. And I remember when that happened, a lot of people talk about when they're Saved, it was like the greatest moment of their life. And for me it was, and it was also the most humiliating time because I had to tell everybody, I had to confess to my wife, I had to confess to the pastor, I had to confess to the deacons, I had to confess to everybody that I needed to step down from every single thing because I have been just a living hypocrite. But one thing that I remember from that time that sticks in my mind is that there was this guy I worked with in the Sunday school named Matt. And to me, I just, up until that moment, Matt was the most uninteresting human being in my life. If someone were to come up to me during the week, even though Matt and I work together every Sunday, if someone were to come up to me during the week and say, hey, how's Matt doing? I'd be like, Matt who? What are you talking about? Oh, that guy. That guy in Sunday school. Oh, that guy. Yeah, that guy. Right, what about him? How is he doing? i would like, I don't know. I guess he's okay. I don't even know what he does for a living. But after the Lord got a hold of my heart, I remember that Matt had a prayer request about his mother at that point. And I remember that week I was thinking about Matt. And it was the weirdest feeling to me that I was concerned about Matt. I even thought to myself, why am I thinking about this guy? And I realized that's what love looks like. I hadn't done that yet in my life, and I was realizing that loving other people um, is a completely different experience than trying to find people interesting enough and worthy of my time. Very different things. In other words, I would find people to be worthy of my inner circle at my church, and if they were worthy of my inner circle, then they were worthy of my time. And what it says here in verse 10 is that your church is your inner circle. Everybody in your church is your inner circle. Everybody should be let in. And everybody should be someone that you devote yourself to in your brotherly love. In fact, the next statement is even harder to do, not only do you have to be devoted to everyone, but give preference to everyone. This preference is very difficult for us because the preference is where we have to start making excuses for each other because we love each other that much. Have we made excuses for each other? You know, I have, uh, being in a Christian, instit- working at a Christian institution, I hear this all the time, um, you can't question someone's salvation because none of us know. What's interesting is Paul is very clear that you can know. You look at their fruits. Paul says it all the time. Um, you, can, you can know if someone's saved. You look at their fruits. If it's not there, then man, you should question that. What it says you can't know are motives, That's what it says you can't know. So I don't know someone's motives, but I can... Scripture tells us to look for signs whether someone's saved or not. But motives we don't know. Now when it comes to motives, I have been, in my life, what I would call a (laughs) hyper-Calvinist. Now some of you may not be familiar with these terms that have been floating around and people have been using, but hyper-Calvinism is this idea that God doesn't use means to do what he wants to do. He just kind of, he's a mechanical thing that just says, do it, and there's like no means by which he does things. So it's like he just says, uh, you know, this will happen to you, and this will happen to you, and there's like no means by which those things happen. What I mean by hyper-Calvinist is that I believe people... Without Christ, we are completely depraved. We are completely just the worst we could possibly be. In fact, I might even say we're totally depraved. What happens, though, is with that kind of thinking, what we end up doing is even after someone is saved, we still think that there's no good in them. We don't even give Christ credit in their hearts. And so every time they do something that we don't like or we think has been a slight to us, when something happens that they do, we immediately think that the worst motives were involved, the worst motives. Now, what's interesting is if you have a friend and they say or do something and someone says, man, that guy's a jerk, like, well, I know they kind of look like a jerk and they say things, but they don't mean it. You just got to know him, right? Have you ever had that where you have people in your lives and someone you know, said something mean about them, but you know them and you're like, I know them. Because we love them, right? And Because we love them, we give them the benefit of the doubt. In fact, it's almost as if in 1 Corinthians 13 it says something about that, that love thinks all things or believes all things now what does that mean that means gives the benefit of the doubt man we can't even do that for our own wives can we men it's hard for us to do that with our own spouse to give them the benefit of the doubt and we're supposed to love them for sure so if we can't even do that with our own spouse how are we going to do it with each other how are we going to love each other when our first thought, when something happens that we don't like, is their motives are hideous? They are just lazy. They're just terrible. They're just, they just aren't worthy of me believing all things about them. As we look at verse 10, I also want us to think of something else. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. What else does it mean to be devoted? Devotion means giving the benefit of the doubt because we don't know motives, and we want to stick up for each other. Even in our minds, we want to stick up for each other because we love each other that much. And if we think that there might be bad motives, we need to approach them. It's almost as if Scripture tells us to do that, too, if we're suspicious of the motives. To approach them and talk to them. Otherwise, we're believing all things about each other. But there's another aspect to devoting ourselves to each other. Did you know devoting yourself to something often means some kind of sacrifice? Now, many of you, probably most of you, are employed. Most of you, your employment starts uh, with being to work on time. Maybe even like 8 o'clock in the morning. How many of you, 8 o'clock in the morning is when you need to be at work? All right. How many before 8 o'clock? I'm sorry. All right. And you're there, right? We're there because it's not that we're so devoted to our work, but we're devoted to supplying for our family because we're devoted to our family. And being late means a problem that might hurt our work, which then would cause that devotion to our family to suffer. Did you know that we have a Sunday school program here? At Trinity Presbyterian Church doesn't start at 8 in the morning that'd be kind of rough 930 not bad not bad an hour and a half extra Um, you might feel that Sunday school is a small thing it's not the real thing like worship did you know there's other reasons to go to Sunday school Did you know it might mean being showing devotion to a person? That it might be encouraging to that person as they teach Sunday school for you to be there to see them do it? That doesn't sound very spiritual, but I think according to verse 10, it's very spiritual. I'm so devoted. That even though on Monday through Friday, I am up to be ready at 8 in the morning, I can be ready with my family by 9.30. Even if I think I'm not getting anything out of this, I am so devoted to my Sunday school teacher as a person because I love them. I just think it'd be encouraging to them if I were there. That is a way of showing love. It's a way of devoting yourself to someone because it means sacrifice. Even if you have kids, which I always add that because getting ready for anything becomes 60,000 times harder when you have children. It's always interesting. It's hard to get there on time when you have a, you know, your wife always wants everyone to look right. So what's funny is that it's hard to make it on time, but you get there and because of your wife, everyone looks great. But if your wife is ever gone, and you have to get everyone there, and it's just up to the guy, oh, they're there on time. <laughs> I mean, it's like the guy's probably thinking, I don't know what the big deal is. I mean, how come we're always late with my wife? You know, We're here like 10 minutes early. And then you look at all these kids, and they look like homeless children. <laughs> and you're like, well, I thought they combed their own hair. Um, but being ready is always hard. But man, can you imagine how special it is when your Sunday school teacher sees you walk in? Do you think they care if the kid's hair is is combed? No. They see those pews filled with people that want to hear what he has to say. Man, that is devotion. Verse 11 goes on. It says, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I want you to think about those three things. Not lagging behind in being diligent for each other. Are you diligent? Do you lag in trying to be a help to each other? In trying to stick up for each other? I mean, think about This is something that uh, our pastor brought out last week, how we become so annoyed with each other in their infirmities, that when someone has an infirmity or a weakness, instead of our heart going out to them, we are annoyed by them. Even if it's a sickness that they have no control over, it annoys us that they are sick if they have a weakness, that we actually have a way to help them. Instead of getting excited that we could be used to help them, they actually make us angry. If the Lord has given you the men in this place, if the Lord has given you the gift of being able to mentor men and the insight to help men become more manly, then if you see something effeminate about a young man in, this, in, this, in our congregation, it shouldn't make you upset. It should get you excited that now that you have found someone that you can help. They shouldn't be someone that you're like, ugh, that guy. If you were only as manly as me. <laughs> I mean, I see this where I work. I see young men around that have not been taught what it means to walk like a man, talk like a man, let alone have responsibility like a man, and I could let that just make me bitter. In fact, it has. <laughs> I look at him and I'm just ticked. So I want to punch him in the face and say, see, you know, get up. I'm teaching you how to be a man. <laughs> right? Somewhere in my fantasy that works. Um, he gets up and he's like, thank you, ow. Um, But in real life, what they need is someone to love them. And love is harder than being mad. In fact, what's interesting is love takes more of your sacrifice of your body. In fact, you would, in order to love the way this is talking about, you would have to sacrifice your body for people. Because God's will for you is to love each other by devoting yourself to each other, by thinking what's best of each other, by encouraging each other, and sacrificing what you hold dear, which is usually your body, for each other. Because this is what the will of God is. In fact, it even says in verse 11, for you to be enthusiastic? In verse 11, it says, fervent in spirit. All right, this is going to go against some of what you believe about yourself. The Greek word there, and I hate to pull out the word, you know, the Greek word thing, but it comes, this this word of being fervent is the word that we use for zealous, which is, if you look at it, bubbly. (laughs) I kid you not. You can look it up. Strong's concordance. Um, It means bubbly. It means burning hot so that there is overflowing bubbles. Many of you probably would not characterize yourself as bubbly. Are you fervent in spirit for each other? Do you get excited Over others. Now, this is where this is difficult because we don't all express ourselves the same way. Uh, My mom, my wife is already smiling, my mom is a bubbly person. She is super bubbly, and I grew up with an incredible amount of affirmation. Everything I did was the greatest thing in the universe. I think for two reasons. Number one, it was actually a great thing that I did. But also, (laughs) also, my mother expressed it with incredible enthusiasm. I mean, she was the greatest. I mean, I think all of my confidence that I have does not come from my personality, but just because my mom was so sure what I was doing was wonderful. Um, I learned in the military... That not everyone shares the same enthusiasm (laughs) for what I do. Um, You know, my drill sergeant would yell at us to do something, and eventually when I was able to do it, I would look back at them with this big dumb smile on my face like, see, I, I did it. And they looked at me with this blank look of, yep. Now, what I found out later was some of those drill sergeants were very proud of us because their job is to help us see what we're really like, useless, and that through hard work, you can actually become useful. And that fills them with pride, that they can make kids go from uh, snot-nosed jerks to someone that knows how to follow an order. That's hard to do in eight, eight weeks. Not everyone demonstrates how they feel on their sleeves. But there is a sense in which you can tell when someone is excited over you. Um, I had a spiritual dad when I was living in Ohio uh, named Bob Forney. And he was really good at encouraging me. In fact, most of what I remember from Dr. Forney was his encouragement. But when I look back and I really think about it, there were times where he said some really mean things to me. There were things where he said mean things about my family because my leadership was so crummy. But I remember mostly the encouraging things. In fact, it was because he was so encouraging to me, and when I looked in his eye, it wasn't fake. I think he really believed in me. So that when he said those things that were hard to say, I really listened. You would be surprised how far your encouragement and absolute excitement for someone, how far that goes to give you the credibility to be able to tell them terrible things. It's something that we learn as elders, something our pastor understands, it's something that in leadership you get. But it takes a lot of work to be fervent in the joys of others. Now how do you do that? Well, the power of the Holy Spirit, fervent in spirit, There are different ways of taking what spirit means. It could mean fervent in your spirit, might mean fervent in the spirit. But whatever it means, none of us could give real fervent excitement over each other without the Holy Spirit. It helps us to rejoice in our hope. It helps us to preserve in our tribulations together. And it devotes ourselves in prayer. So let me finish with this. There are some lessons here that we, if we're going to be a church that is able to devote itself in prayer, to rejoice with each other in hope, and most importantly, to preserve each other in our tribulations, these are the things we need to know. Number one, our identity is found in Christ so that we are able to be living sacrifices that are humble, that are constantly looking for the will of God to do. God's will for us, then, is to love each other, not in a way where we're waiting for heaven to come, and then we can love each other the best way. This is demanding out of us that we love each other the way we should love each other in heaven. This is not saying, do the best you can till Christ comes back and then everything will be set right and then you can love each other the right way. This is saying, fight Satan because you need to be loving each other the way you're supposed to love each other in heaven right now. The standard is, love each other the way you're supposed to love each other in eternity, this is heavenly love that's demanded now in the midst of a fallen world. It's going to be hard. It's going to be terrible. But we don't get the excuse that because we live in a fallen world, we can wait to love each other better when we get to heaven. We don't get to have favorites in the church everybody's your favorite. Everybody's your favorite. You don't get to be awkward with anyone. If you feel awkward with someone, you get to know them and love them so that the awkwardness is gone because you love them. We are not to think ill of others or others' intentions, but we are to, and listen to this, we are to ignorantly think the best. Doesn't that bother some of you who are very, very intelligent, high IQ people? Isn't it true that it makes you feel dumb to believe in something when you know that being cynical is the best way to be smart? It is why I'm telling you these things, people, because I struggle with this all the time. My pride tells me that I am smarter when I'm cynical. And it's a lie. And that pride of thinking I am more smart when I'm cynical is what has separated me from people I should be loving. Ignorance is bliss. Until you find out more, until there's reason to believe, we should be ignorantly and blissfully believing the best of each other. We are not to be cold. We are to be enthusiastic with each other. And that means getting to know each other and seeing what makes each other enthusiastic. And making the sacrifice of finding out more about that weird thing they like. Even if, and listen to me carefully, those of you that are like me, even if it's sports. <laughs> and that's hard. Because I hate sports. I kind of like football for a while because of the violence. But then everyone started going, dropping to their knee and, you know, after you... Served in the military for a while, and you see millionaires dropping to their knee in front of the flag. You're just like, I don't know, I don't, not for me. Um, and I know they don't show that anymore, and so maybe that's why it's okay again. But it's just hard. But I'm willing to do it if that's what you're into. I'll find out more about the what is it, Cal- Carolina, the Panthers, right? <laughs> All right. The most important thing I want us to leave with with here is the most humbling part and the most difficult part to say, is when Paul lists this stuff out, this is not an ultimate goal for our church. Paul is not saying your ultimate goal is for people to be devoted to each other and love each other sacrificially. That's, you know, that's kind of a goal out there. We'll see how we can get there. You know, we'll put a strategic plan together so we can strategically get to the goal of loving each other. What he's saying is, is this kind of love is not the best way to live. It's saying this is God's will. Therefore, not living this way is a sin. In other words, anything less than devotion is sinful. We are self-help. Ben Shapiro... uh, Tucker Carlson Christians. Because what we do is we see these principles in the Bible and we say, aren't they great principles? We should be living by those principles. What great principles? We are Christians, which means this. These aren't just great principles to live by. This is the will of the Almighty God for us And in not doing it, we're sinning against the Lord. When I choose not to be devoted to you, I'm choosing sin. When I choose to put a wall between you and I, I'm choosing sin. I'm not doing the less good thing. I'm not just saying, well, this is a good principle, but I'm not going to do this principle. This is the will of the Lord for us. And we're sinning against the Almighty God when we decide, I'm not going to let you into my inner circle. When I decide that you're not worthy of my time and devotion. May the things we learn today bother us this week because it's bothered me in my life. Almost all of you are better at this than I am. I think I'm better at being polite. I'm better at being a a hypocrite than most of you. And that's why I'm preaching to myself today. But may the Lord give us the grace to obey his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that your word would burn deep in our hearts, Let it burn in us, Lord, that we might bubble over with zeal for each other in the power of the Holy Spirit for the sake of your Son, because you loved us. Lord, we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.